This is Music in the Church, a podcast that brings you insight into today's diverse worship landscape by connecting the dots between beliefs and practices so that you can have a happier, healthier ministry. I'm Sarah Bariza, a researcher and church musician living in Cincinnati, Ohio. My co-host Crawford Wiley is off this week, but he and I will be back next week to talk about applying to church music jobs and the survey I did of over 250 church musicians and the people who have hired them. For the last several weeks, we've been talking about musical virtuosity, and today is our fourth and last episode in this series. This week's guest is Dr. Brigida Johnson. She's an assistant professor of ethnomusicology and African American studies at the University of South Carolina. In our interview, Brigida discusses calling and anointing for music ministry in African American churches in the U.S. This is another way of thinking about the values around musical skill. In the churches that she's studied as an ethnomusicologist, musical skill is important, but not the be-all, end-all. Musicians should also be called to ministry. So can you tell us where you started as an ethnographer? I started actually in graduate school. I was at UCLA in the ethnomusicology program and, um, you know, learning what it was to be an ethnomusicologist. I was already a musician, grew up playing in the church, played a variety of um, styles in the church, as well as, you know, in grade school. I started violin in second grade, and so I was, I'm from Atlanta originally, and so I was in a, a unique school system and that we're predominantly black school system and we had you know we still had string programs and band programs and my um, violin teacher Audrey Reese was an African-American violinist music educator and what she did was bring in different styles of music and so we played all the traditional standard classical stuff for festivals and the you know the the things we go out to compete with but she also would bring in arrangements of african-american music popular music as well as sacred so i grew up playing the violin but also playing spirituals gospel funk on a string instrument so I, you know coming into graduate school decades later i was i was coming with this kind of um toolkit of a perspective on African-American music that actually was very expansive. It looked at the diaspora, it looked at different genres and styles, and also growing up in church, I, uh, oddly enough, I played my violin in church. So I went to a um, small country church. I'm from Atlanta, but my mom, parents, we would go down to my mother's church in middle Georgia, and we were a small mm-hmm. country church off the um, we're in, highway. We're in middle Georgia. Um, I grew uh, up in, in quote-unquote middle Georgia. Okay, so yeah, so basically that Perry-Marshaville era, yeah, area. Yeah, I, I, I lived in uh, Hawkinsville, Haynesville. Okay, so yeah, so oh, basically be- world. Yeah, be- below. Yeah, 10 minutes Perry. There we yeah. go. But, wow, so even closer. So we, <laughs> That's a small world, yeah. We almost grew up together. How about that? <laughs> yeah. And so we would go to my grandmother's church. Um, that's the church my mother grew up in basically two and three times a month for most of my life. And this church was off of a highway. It was founded literally as the Civil War was ending, and it was Naomi Church, and I grew up playing, you know, violin in that church, and it was a small country church. We had violin, and also my uncle was the choir director, and so I eventually got into playing piano. So my my experiences by the time I got into graduate school was um, con- compiled of this kind of instrumental exposure to not only, you know, classical music and Western art music, but also this, you know, varieties of African-American and black musics. And um, also, when we weren't going down to Middle Georgia for church, we were in Atlanta going to other churches. So I had a Mm -hmm. kind of multi-denominational background, raised AME, but also exposed to Baptist and Pentecostal and um, holiness, as well as, you know, 
um, Church of God and um, Church of Christ. We literally visited mm-hmm. different churches while we were in Atlanta. So by the time I got to L.A., my concept of what African-American church was had a lot of you know, influences as far as what particular music ministries would do and what particular kind of liturgical traditions were involved. And so, I, you know, of course, I got the wonderful UCLA experience in doing the world music ensembles, but I eventually came back to getting into um, looking into mega churches in Los Angeles because I had come into Los Angeles and I started visiting churches and trying to find a church home while I was there. And I noticed that at one particular church, it was a large mega church, and they were doing, of course, the traditional African-American, you know, gospel, hymns, anthems, but they also were doing this thing called praise and worship that was kind of emerging right at the, you know, turn of 2000 as far as um, getting well-known and having, like, you know, those Worship Together CDs and all those kind of things. So I was noticing that they were doing praise and worship, but they were basically doing um, variations, very similar to what we see with um, black music and hymnody, where you have a kind of variation of an actual written hymn, kind of give it some kind of gospel flavor or something they would do to it to make it more closer to the African-American musical aesthetic. And so I was, I was curious that it was so um, quite a bit of this praise of worship music in this particular church, and I was wondering that people know what these songs were coming from. Um, or were they um, interested in or why they were gravitating towards this type of music. And I started looking around Los Angeles and noticing that you also had this kind of um, praise and worship um, boom happening in Los Angeles in African-American churches that were coming from various influences. So it wasn't just, you know, looking at a hill song or looking at the Maranatha recordings or the Vineyard Churches recordings. It was also um, African-American churches locally creating and composing their own praise and worship songs and um and them becoming influential in how to you know do praise and worship in a congregational setting but also definitely with a a church that has such a heavy choir influence in its musical worship style so how do you make you know a, a, a style or genre of music that was really kind of known for small voice ensembles or worship bands how do you make that a work and a setting where people are used to having choirs and choir singing and so i was kind of at the time I was in L.A., I was witnessing how some of the Los Angeles churches were making that happen and looking at some of the music ministers and who they looked at to get a how to kind of convert or, or adopt praise and worship and the overall, not only just genre style or musical style, but the theological aspects of music and worship and what it means beyond just singing a song or sounding great, the kind of how do we get groups of people to be fully engaged in worshiping together as opposed to watching or spectating or enamoring at a soloist's, you know, skill. But how do we get people back into singing as a collective and not just singing the choruses? And so it was those Mm -hmm. layers and levels I would see. And then I basically developed my dissertation project by looking at three churches in Los Angeles. And um, they all had their different, you know, perspectives on praise and worship music in particular, but they also had their own traditions because they were, uh, one was from the um, African-American, uh, African Methodist Episcopal tradition, that's First AME. Uh, another one was from the uh, Church of God in Christ, that would be West Angeles Church of God in Christ. And then my main case study church would be the Faithful Central Bible Church, which at that point had kind of um, transitioned from being a missionary Baptist church into being a, a more neo-Pentecostal charismatic church. And so 
looking at those three congregations and how they kind of how the music and worship operated within the traditions they were coming out of as well as as these large congregational church bodies what does it mean to have a music and worship ministry in a church where you have at least 5,000 people in the room per Sunday and in some cases with the multiple services two and three thousand people in a room three and four times a day on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. So that was a pretty, you know, involved ethnographic project. It took a couple of years, but I, I enjoy it because I came up, of course, as we do, with more questions, you know. What does this mean? Is this is this reflected in other churches? And I started to see a couple of things emerge. So that was kind of my entry point. But I was always being able to draw back on my earlier experiences in a small rural country church and then also being from Atlanta, a large metropolitan church and seeing different variations of some of the same themes. And so that's kind of how I got into it. And that's kind of where my current work is looking at not just mega churches, but also expanding because I, of course, eventually left Los Angeles and I started seeing some of the same things in smaller or regular sized churches, particularly African-American churches. And so kind of making some connections there. Can you tell us a little bit about the places that you've been since you were in Los Angeles? So we have a general scope of... Oh, okay. Well, after Los Angeles, I had a postdoc, um, a postdoctoral uh, fellowship at Syracuse University in central New York in Syracuse. And so that was way back on coming back to the East Coast, but um, north. Sometimes I call Syracuse Southern Canada because it's so far up in upstate New York. Yeah. And... And it was interesting because they had some of the same issues and you saw, you know, a, a particularly uh, a city where um, the recession had really hit it. Um, actually had it hit it twice at that point. It was it was definitely a, a, a city that was struggling with population because you had a lot of people who would leave and never come back. So yeah, you had a yeah. lot of older older people in the city. A lot, it was hard for some of the churches to maintain my pastor. Um, some of the churches I visited, they were actually still trying to hire somebody. They could not get people to come to that region. And other churches were, you know, still um, still holding on. They had also legacies that went back into, you know, pre-emancipation um, with some of the first AME Zion and AME churches there. So we had those kind of historical churches there. And also, just being a small community, there was not a lot of musicians to go around. And so I saw churches that were similar to small churches in Los Angeles, using things like tracks and recordings because they didn't have, they didn't have enough musicians. Or in some cases, um, you saw um, larger um, multicultural, multi-ethnic megachurches like in the suburbs and kind of drawing people there and people were uh, coming into those and um, really kind of abandoning traditional either denominations or worship practices because they were getting something out of a, another megachurch. And um, also I saw, you know, you can tell some of the churches that still had their roots in the South. Actually, I, I went to a church, I believe it's called Southern Missionary Baptist Church, um, of all things. And what they were doing was very much similar um, traditions of music that you found in the South, like line hymns and meter music that most people would not assume would mm-hmm. be in Northern churches. Yeah. And so it was almost like that generation of people who migrated there maintained a lot of those song traditions and were literally passing them down to young people. I went to... I think one service where the young people was like a, a, a youth day and the youth actually led, you know, a line hymn and people would be shocked to know that young people still sing line hymns. Um, and so this was, I, I saw that. And then after two years, I came and was um, hired by the University of South Carolina. So I'm basically come back to the South and a South Carolina context where on top of it being Southern and a smaller city in Columbia, but also this connection to 
very much the beginning of a lot of uh, traditions in America. You have the, you know, Charleston is a major uh, port for slavery, so you have a, a, mm-hmm. a connection yeah. to that history here. It's the Civil War, you know, um, the Civil War history is basically all around you when you walk around, particularly downtown Columbia. And some of the first, you know, independent African-American villages were here, as well as the Gullah communities on the um, Sea Island coast. So you have all this kind of rich African, Afro-American history here, and it's in the churches as well, being some of those places where right after emancipation, the churches were the kind of first independent black-owned spaces in many places, but particularly here in South Carolina. So you see that resonating here in another way that you may not see it in a larger metropolitan space like in Atlanta or Charlotte or, you know, um, Dallas. So you've worked in a just a really wide range of African American churches as a as an ethnographer, but you've mentioned that you've had you've seen a lot of recurring themes across these different churches, and it seems like that's these themes are things that you're focusing on in your forthcoming book. Right, I sure am. That is, um, I when I just went back and started to do follow up research in the mega churches, I started to say, well, is this just a mega church thing? Is this just what's happening in African American mega churches? Or something else going on, and I, I try to frame how I talk about the book is like, you know, what happens in the post oh, oh Happy Day Black Church? You know, and so looking back and saying, well, not only do we have this emergence in this kind of mega church movement, but we also have a lot of social cultural things that have been happening to the black community um, that has basically directly not only impacted African American, you know, um, Protestant churches, but also the communities that they live in. And so how they serve those communities and music is such a core central part of the black church experience. The music also is ebbing and flowing and adjusting. And so when I think about, um, you know, how the, um, how technology has changed, how, you know, migration movements and gentrification has impacted the black community, all these things really touch on what happens musically because if people are no longer in community-based churches and everybody's commuting, Mm -hmm. what does that say for the traditional setting where you have a music teacher in the church and people just walk down the street and take music lessons? Yeah. How does music get transmitted if people are no longer into making sure their kids are taking music lessons? Or what if the woman or man who teaches the, you know, teach the kid music in the churches are no longer in that position. What if they decided, okay, we're going to go with the band and the band members not really into music education as much as being there every week Uh or parents have changed. Their their ideas about what they want their children to be involved with and has changed. And so you have these desires of keeping traditions alive, but a lot of tradition kind of traditional modes of how to keep those things going are in flux at this point. When you see, um, youth choirs being very much a difficult thing to maintain. Or you see in the case of how mass incarceration impacts the black community, how hard it is to have a men's choir in some churches just because you don't have a lot of young and older men to fill a choir consistently. So these things that happen politically and economically eventually fall back into the lap of the African-American church community. And, of course, how musicians, you know, write about or sing about or minister about what's going on around them definitely impacts the music. And so um, those kind of out non-musical factors impacting the musical factors is kind of what my book looks at. And so how music is being transmitted, technology shifts as far as, you know, having either more access to you know, nice instruments versus what does that mean when we are, are trying to chase, you know, this virtuosity or chase these perfect presentations, but what happens to the ministry? 
um, the the changes of the in the gospel music industry has definitely impacted music in the church. Because more often than not, you had musicians coming out of the church going into gospel as professionals. And when there was a vast amount of independent record labels, you had a vast amount of music you could hear on gospel radio and buy in gospel, you know, um, gospel music or um, Christian music bookstores. Uh So Uh when your choir directors have fewer choices and they only have the, you know, top 10 that's only happening at a certain amount of time, um, what does that do when your church doesn't fit the mold of what's in top 10? Yeah. Um, And so those kinds of things. And so there's a lot of things kind of evolving, but definitely looking at um, connected to, I think we were talking about, you know, um, thinking about excellence and talents and anointing. Um, What we've always seen in the African-American church is this concept of calling. And so we see it definitely with our, our pastoral ministries and people being called to preach. And I think in the 21st century, people have definitely gotten towards looking into things like spiritual gifts and multiple callings and not just preaching, but also different ways people serve in the church and and looking at the gifts of music and music ministry and trying to be more nuanced about it. Because, you know, the concept of talented church musicians is kind of it's kind of a default in the black church. It's mm-hmm. kind of it goes with the territory. You really have this this concept where music and excellence in music is already there. Um, it's like basically you have a difference between really good musicians and those ones who are in the stratosphere as ultra talented and genius mm-hmm. level musicians, music making. So when it comes down to it, now music leaders and worship leaders are thinking, well, you might be talented, but are you called to do this? You might be talented to be a musician, but are you you're called to be a minister of music and a leader in worship? And so that's kind of made people really look into what's happening in churches because you do have a lot of talented people, but the question becomes the integrity around what they're doing, the anointing around it. Is there any kind of manipulation or is there an honesty or authenticity around worship? People are getting very more... Um, they're being more thoughtful about what's happening on Sunday morning. This seems like a like a theological shift. Oh, definitely. You have that happening in some of the churches. Some of the churches are being um, even more so um, literal about how they talk about music and theology, as opposed to just taking it for granted. People get what you're talking about when you say anointing or calling. Mm-hmm. You have pastors really um, starting to preach about it. You have music ministry leaders doing symposiums and workshops, and, mm-hmm. and in some cases breaking it down and making the distinction. I think um, my chapter in the Spirit of Praise book talks about the title of it is This Is Not the Warm-Up Act. And I got that title literally from a pastor. And the pastor was saying, you know, literally he he said it in service. They were actually having praise and worship. And it was high praise and worship. And people were very, you know, involved. And and the vertical worship was happening. He paused and said, just want to let you know what we're doing and what we have just done is not the warm-up act. And so literally pausing in a service and explaining that what what we have done is not a pre-show for something else. This like a pre-show to the sermon? Here. Exactly. It's not a pre-show to the sermon or a pre-show for you to get your word or get your message. It's actually something we're supposed to be doing uh-huh. when we come in here every week. You know, this kind of moment where we all have a collective congregational vertical moment with God. And so uh-huh. we see worship leaders talking about that and really pointing to some cases models in the old testament looking at you know the levitical um levitical offices and models of you know an actual signed group of people who are over worshiping the church and making sure the nation or the body is involved in worship and 
very conscious as opposed to just being emotional. Because, you know, of course, the emotional and the catharsis aspects of worship are there, but also being mindful. Why are you here? You're not here to necessarily just always get something out of God. It's also what can you give? And oftentimes worship is the thing you can give. And what does that look like? If you're not, even if you're not the best singer or mm-hmm. you're not the best musician, what does that look like for the regular layperson? And really telling people, you know, you offer up your praise. And it, it doesn't have to be this perfect, perfect thing, but actually getting people more engaged in just offering up worship. And so that, and, and people doing it together. I said, this is what mm-hmm. we do as believers. You know, this is a lifestyle. So you hear people once again saying, praise and worship and praise is a lifestyle. So it's not just you turn it on at 10 o'clock in the morning on mm-hmm. Sunday. This is something you can actually take with you. So not only is this not the warm-up bag, this is something that you can use as you're going through your week. Mm-hmm. And so once again, that, that style of you know praise and worship is always seen as a more simplified style or simplified versions of music making. And it's that on purpose. It's literally for the regular person who may not be able to sing four octaves and who can't remember a thousand verses and who have a, a small mm-hmm. vocal range. They can take a simple melody with a simple, you know, concentrated message talking about worshiping God or looking up to God or looking to God or drawing, you know, drawing God to where they are. And they can do it on Tuesday. They can do it on mm-hmm. their lunch break. You know, if they're having a moment, they can pull to the side of the road in their car and then really just go into worship and really seeing how people can be, they, they can be their own music makers and get to worship mm-hmm. through that. You know, you may not remember every bullet point in the sermon, but you're going to remember this chorus. Mm-hmm. And so you have... Um, even more so, I think it's, it's a, tradition, a tradition in African-American churches is one thing I've seen. Uh, oftentimes, the preacher would connect their sermon to a song. So you might have a song that's a pre-sermonic song, or you might have a choir or a singer come up after a sermon has been li- delivered and connected to a song. But in this case, we're looking at also people embodying this worship. So they might get a connected song, but they also are in- encouraged and welcomed and invited to sing along, you know. And so um, that kind of more kind of thought out uh, process and, and people really, you know, knowing what they're doing and why as opposed to, oh, we've always done it this way or this is, you know, this is exciting. I think a lot of congregants and believers want to know. They don't, they, they, they understand tradition, but they also understand when some things become rote. And so when I was doing my research, looking, I was talking to some of the first praise and worship leaders at Faithful Central, for example, and they said, you know, gospel was, was great in the 80s, but it started to be like, they started to look for more. They wanted more mm-hmm. out of the music. They wanted more out of the lyrical content. And they started looking around and they noticed where, you know, churches like Maranatha or in some cases churches like uh, West Angeles, where they were getting more into congregational singing and worship directed singing and songs and mm-hmm. song types. And people really, you know, having a moment and taking a moment, not just going through the motions, but really being mindful and getting everyone on board with that. Mm-hmm. And so um, you saw, you know, you, we know praise and worship has been a kind of global phenomenon. Yeah. And in, in some cases it's had some negative backlash because oftentimes you see people grabbing the songs and not understanding the intent and they focus around, this is not for the soloists, this is not for the praise team, this is actually for the people. And so um, you've seen some of these worship leaders come out and do symposiums and they do workshops and they are writing books about, you know, helping ministers and ministers of music try to evolve and develop this thing without it becoming a star show or a talent show. Can we talk more about this idea of like, you know, talent show, star show, and congregational singing? Because like, a lot of what you're doing is talking about congregational participation and how like simpler choruses and things that people, an average 
mostly untrained person could sing along with. But then I was I was reading some of your work on Faithful Central in Los Angeles, and you mentioned some of these musicians are also playing in like Grammy shows, like amazingly talented and skilled musicians who are leading praise bands. And in some churches, mm-hmm. that that could be a place where oh wow, I just want to sit sit back and watch this amazing musician, right? But that doesn't seem to be the case at all. What, what's happening here? Well, oftentimes the regular layperson. I think LA is an interesting situation or context because LA you have Los Angeles and you have Hollywood in the entertainment industry, and oftentimes people don't realize that they do intersect, but they're not the same thing. And whereas you would have, particularly at Faithful Central, you would have musicians who may play with sessions on, you know, um, Shaka Khan or play with Snoop Dogg or play with, you know, Gladys Knight, all these famous popular people in popular culture. Um, but they also have people who work craft services at Paramount. And you also have people who are managers and who do production assistance and who are makeup artists. And so you have... A, a, a context where you have people who are in and out of the, the entertainment industry because that's their job. And so it's not necessarily mm-hmm. being Star Trek. And oftentimes when you see, you know, these musicians playing in these kind of like the Grammys or Oscars or whatever, sometimes you may not realize it's them until you, unless you actually have a camera on them. Um, and also mm, it's, yeah. it's also understood that these are professional musicians. And so this is what they do for life. And it's not necessarily that this is a, a random thing. It's like, oh, this person is going to be, you know, in this particular space, I believe one of our um, the drummers at Faithful Central played for Prince. And I think she was the one that played for him when he was at the Super Bowl. And so she was a drummer for the youth ministry at that time. And so that concept of, you know, not being starstruck comes from top down. So if you have a congregation mm. where they're not having a special seat for the famous people or not, you know, um, catering to the celebrities that may or may not be in the congregation... Mm-hmm. The musicians basically get treated regular like everyone else. You know, it is, it is, mm-hmm. if you have a church that's actually doing all that with, you know, this kind of special preferential treatment for celebrities or whatever, you will see musicians possibly getting into that same kind of scope. But more often than not, it's almost like this is a part of their job and they're here. This, If anything, it's almost like, wow, they can have all those access to all those opportunities, but they choose to bring their gifts here to to worship with us and lead us in worship mm-hmm. and also do it excellently and do it well and so um another thing i reminded of when i was talking to the bass player for faithful central um andrew Goucher, he's kind of a, a, a huge deal in gospel music he's also often known as king of the gospel bass and so he goes before even his kind of secular um gigs and secular um assignments he's actually you know been on a lot of james Cleve's cleveland albums he's played with the hawkins He's played with Andre Crouch. He's played with kind of a lot of those kind of quintessential mm-hmm. modern gospel um, composers, and he's been on those recordings. And so when he, we were talking about the kind of aspect of a lot of the musicians you see in the music industry, he said, you know, he basically very frankly said a lot of those guys are church boys. And so a lot of what we see in the entertainment industry and the music industry are actually church musicians who've expanded out into the industry. And um, I believe when I remember, uh, was it? Prince's last band, when he was in Los Angeles doing that 21-night stand, quite a few of them actually were people who were born and raised in the church, and they were like second- and third-generation church musicians. And so that concept of, we think about, you know, secular artists and the session musicians, a lot of them got their first trainings in the church. And so they're bringing that, and of course they expanded it, they became more skilled and trained. And so there's almost like, when you look at these artists, 
or look at these musicians it's almost like well those one that's one of us in that particular space mm-hmm. and so what i did oh. yeah yeah and so what i did see in some of the churches like west sand just like faithful central and even i, I, I think maybe first in me they even had you know ministries and prayer groups for people who worked in the industry so you, you got to see the cross-section of Basically, uh, as one minister leader said, it's like, you know, you're going to be a light in, 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 in uh, spaces of darkness. And so we're here for you to help you transition and you navigate those spaces because you are using your talents as a professional. But at the same time, we understand those those situations you're going into. So actually even being proactive of, you know, having, you know, prayer times and special affinity groups for people who work in the industry as actors or musicians or people who work some of the production aspects of it. So... Um, that is definitely a part of what you see in an L.A. situation and also in, in places like New York as well. So you have gifted musicians who play in these different spaces, but more often than not, they are from the church. And so people recognize them as this. That's one of our people out there. And um, more often than not, they are still, you know, humble. It typically works out. But there's such, in some cases, so much talent. You, you can't have that kind of star mentality in some places because it doesn't really last long. We've seen that in some churches where, you know, you have a music minister that kind of gets, you know, the big head, and then people are like, well, you're too much trouble, or you're 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 breaking up the, the ministry, and so you don't see them placed too long. You see them replaced or moving around a lot, and eventually they're not in anybody's position or anybody's kind of leadership. Mm-hmm. Can we bring this back to thinking about calling or being anointed? Because mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm curious what kind of sonic difference that makes, like that theological shift in thinking that this is a specifically like Christian ministry, you're called by God to do this. Mm-hmm. Like, does that change how things sound? Um, you know, there are many closed Facebook groups that argue about this. <laughs> and believe it or not, we, I love closed Facebook groups. You got to love them. You, you got to love the closed <laughs> Facebook groups. There are a couple of musicians closed Facebook groups. And, um, and really, I think some people are, are starting to refute that because we talk about talent and skill. Talent and skill sounds the same. And so it doesn't, you have some people who don't know anything about Jesus who can play really, really well. If you give them enough mm-hmm. tracks or enough recordings or enough, you know, guys, they can play it just like the most anointed musician on the pew. Mm-hmm. And so when you start mm-hmm. talking about how we, you know, identify what is anointing, often I've seen it really comes down to the larger relationships that happen in music ministry. Um, mm-hmm. One thing mm-hmm. I definitely noticed when I was doing my research is that when you look at churches, more often than not, the music ministry is the largest lay ministry in the church. Because you have mm-hmm. a choir yeah. with multiple voices. You have the musicians. Mm-hmm. And the bigger the yeah. church, the bigger the music ministry. So you have most of the, it's like, you know, almost like a, a mini church within a church. And not only is it the largest ministry, oftentimes lay ministry in a the church, they see each other more than most people in the church because they're rehearsing. Yeah. Yeah, they do. And so they spend a lot more time together than anyone else in the church, including the pastor. The pastor can't see everybody all the time. So the, the music ministry, mm-hmm. the choirs, musicians, they see each other a lot more. They they, they are going through their faith, walk, faith walks together. They are praying together. Yeah. If, the, if the, it's a great ministry, they're praying before. They're praying after rehearsals. They're, you know, they're, they're in the services. Sometimes they do multiple services. They spend a lot of time together. So when you start talking about mm-hmm. anointing, yeah. That's because you're looking at someone's lifestyle. So you can you can be fake for two or three hours on a Sunday, but on Thursday night mm-hmm. when people yeah. are tired 
and they've come in. And they're tired they, and potentially hungry. They, yeah, they're, they're <laughs> usually hungry because they've worked all day and they're tired. So you seeing mm-hmm. how musicians and how choir members deal with each other in those spaces. How do they how do they serve each other when someone's lost a relative or someone's found out they have cancer or someone's found out another you know relative may have you know run away or uh, they have problems at home. Those relationships reveal where the person's heart is for ministry. Even in the, even in a great music ministry where there's excellence and every note is on pitch and every rhythm is there and they never miss anything, how they treat each other goes going back into that ministry aspect of it. You know, you can you can be a show ministry and and be very very you know show, but if people feel like they don't belong and they don't feel like you know they're being missed or they're you know they don't feel like they're being um, heard, oftentimes those people will leave and in some cases it becomes not sustainable because if it's all about being perfect for show then you don't have any substance and it's, it's really hard mm-hmm. to spend that much time with people or that many people and not try to pour into them at some point without you know without it becoming something where it become you know it may become unhealthy when you're just there just to get the notes right and so it's very difficult and when you think about for example african-american churches you have this concept of family and familia that's kind of built in culturally anyway and so mm-hmm. yeah. looking at that concept of even, even how people talk about it now, I remember Judy McAllister, she's an awesome um, worship leader. She's recorded, she does symposiums, and when she talks about, you know, relationships in worship arts, the music minister is also the mom, the M-O-M, and the P-O-P or the pop is the pastor of the people. So she's talking about, in these kind of familiar terms, how the music minister or the minister of music works with the head pastor to make ministry, you know, um, cohesive as opposed to, you know, preachers over here doing one thing, music is over here doing another thing, their communication. How do they work together to help, you know, help the people, um, edify the people and also glorify God? How do they work together and strategically think about what's, you know, what is the pastor preaching about and how can the music ministry be in line with that, you know, and also mm-hmm. be in line with what the people might need at a particular moment or season. And so um, I think she also talks about we're thinking about you can have the anointing but not being called for that particular moment. And so we have a lot of people who are very talented. You have people who are also anointed but also understanding what is this your season or your time for a particular thing. So you might be, you know, a great worship leader, but it might not be your time to lead the praise team. And so how do you mm-hmm. get in line with and be prayerful about what that looks like as opposed to, well, I'm anointed to sing and I'm, I'm, I should be the praise of worship leader and God told me I'm going to be a praise of worship leader. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it any means necessary. And that oftentimes mean, you know, stepping on toes. That oftentimes mm. means, you know, not listening to authority or listening to what is needed at that moment. And so, you know, really kind of grounding people into the discipline around your gifts and your anointing. What does that look like? How to be a good communicator. Uh, I know Leo Davis in his book, um, I think it's called No Gimmicks, Relevancy, Commitment, and Excellent and Excellence in Worship Ministry. He has a mm-hmm. whole chapter on planning, you know, just how to plan it. It just can't happen. You have to sit down, mm-hmm. be prayerful, and think about what your church yeah. needs. And so he's also a great uh, music minister in, um, in Tennessee, and they have a very dynamic ministry. And it reaches out not just to the church, but also to the local public school system, um, the uh symphony orchestra there so it's like this kind of church ministry that starts locally but also has this larger communal connection because of people's love for music and music making and excellence around it and so it really um you see people really getting more mindful about what's happening and the the going on with you know business as usual is being questioned now because 
in this case, when I look at, for example, young people and millennials, they're used to good music or, or good sounding or good produced music everywhere. And so mm-hmm. when they get yeah. in church on Sunday, they have an expectation about what the sound system should sound like. They have an mm-hmm. expectation of what the singers should sound like and how the singers should present themselves. And so if you are in the traditional come as you are, do whatever, and don't rehearse part of it, your ministry is going to have problems. Because yeah. at this case, you have young people who are used to quality, are used to production value. And if you're not taking the time to be conscious about how you present the music in the, the ministry and the word and song, you're going to have some, you're going to have some losses basically. And so trying to, you know, that spirit of excellence really being pursuing that. I, I heard that, that phrase, spirit of excellence, pursuit of excellence. I hear it in so many churches who are being more mindful of, you know, reaching the people, but also doing a good job, knowing where, okay, I might not be the greatest lead singer, but I know I could be a great alto. Yeah. You yeah. Know, I could be a strong tenor. You know, I, I may not be able to sing all these other types of songs, but I can be in this particular choir over here. Which is like th- thinking about your how you're gifted with humility. Right, right, right. Definitely. That's definitely a part of it as well. Ego, sometimes we talk about it in terms of ego. Where is the ego? Where is your motive and your intent? And, you know, um, I think a lot of some of the music ministries I've seen, they've basically started their own Bible studies because they realize, okay, if we come in here to rehearse, you know, for a couple of hours every week, how do we feed ourselves? Because oftentimes if you're in a choir, you may not have time to go to a Bible study. Yeah, so yeah, you I, might be I, rehearsing during during the other you might, study. Exactly. Yeah. You might have a conflict on that particular day. So I remember one of the, the choirs that I was participating with, with uh, Faithful Central, they actually did have their own Bible study for a time. And they actually had, um, it was a, a moment in the church where they were having affinity groups that were doing like small classes. And mm-hmm. so the music minister said, well, we'll have a small class that will make it about music ministry. So they picked a book and they went through a book for a couple of weeks and it really looked at excellence in worship and, you know, the discipline, prayer, preparing yourself on a weekly basis and checking your motives. And, and more often than not, people wouldn't have never assumed that this choir was doing this or this music ministry was doing this. They would see the results of it on Sunday morning, but not realize that these people are actually working towards even being even better. They're good enough to be on the Grammys this week, but they're also working to be better than that. They're working to be a, a kind of a ministry to people where they need to have ministry, not not necessarily just entertainment or good notes, but really trying to be in line with what the pastor is doing on his end with the preaching. And so making sure all those things line up, that all those things are basically giving your best to it. And so um, I, I see that. And also you see oftentimes a lot of what this is is actually leadership. And so people not recognizing that music ministry is a type of leadership and um and that's where you have this kind of new awakening where people say, well, they're just not just there as background. They're just not as, as, you know, auxiliary sounds. They're also yeah. leaders in the church because people see them. They see them every Sunday. They're up there yeah. in the front. And sometimes, and so they, depending on the church service, you might be the majority of the sound of the service, you know, depending exactly. on how long the sermon is. Exactly. So you're, you're there and people see you. You become like these kind of almost in, uh, informal leaders and people kind of look to you and, and so, um, and then of course, people are touched by what you do. So you have people who are, you know, oftentimes the, the choir is thanked individually. You go to the parking lot, say, you guys sang really great. You guys touched me. I'm glad you sang that song. Or what is that song? Where can I find that song? They don't ask the hit pastor that. And half the time they cannot get to a, a musician or a director. They might ask the person in the, in the choir room, hey, where you guys do, get that song from? Or can you guys sing that somewhere else? Or in some cases I've seen where, you know, people 
have asked choir members to sing at funerals. And so that is a kind mm-hmm. of ministry that oftentimes you don't get just by going to a Sunday worship service. You see, in some cases, choirs, you know, doing ministry in the community and singing at particular events. Uh, I believe one of the, the choirs I was with, they sang, had an annual actually engagement and in Skid Row during the Christmas uh, Christmas program. And so, you know, this particular church would pick a choir every year to go down to Skid Row and they had like a, a, a gift exchange or I think it was like either dinner or a gift exchange. And so the choir would come down and sing for the homeless people. Mm-hmm. And most people in that church may or may not know they were even doing this for years. And so having this, this concept of this other kind of ministry outside of the church walls is kind of where you see that kind of feeding into and um, musicians being able to stretch out even more because you're not just doing the selections for Sunday, but you're also looking out to how can I impact the world as a musician? How can I do, for example, fellowships with other churches, you know, um, and, and really training ideas there as well. So um, those are kind of some of the things that, you know, looking at how that happens and with those exchanges, I've seen this, the, the I guess the nominationalism start to kind of be more uh, blurry now. Um, you see styles of music and, and traditions and song traditions kind of going across denominational lines and people borrowing songs or mm-hmm. or particular um, phrases or chants and, you know, riffs or whatever, and they bring those in, and sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. <laughs> and and uh, But people people realizing that, you know, when they look into their, their congregations, that you have even more diverse people. You know, you have not only African Americans, you have some... Af- Africans or African immigrants. You have mm-hmm. Afro, yeah. um, Af- Afro-Latinos and in some cases and um, a, a few Caucasian members who come in. And so kind of looking at you have a diverse audience, you have people who are coming from other denominational backgrounds and what do you do with that? You know, you can't give the same two or three styles all the time. And so how do yeah. you kind of minister and also be mindful of you know the diversity you have in your pews? You know, just looking at how people, um, what people within the church are doing. We have a lot of talented musicians and music ministers and worship leaders who are also rec- uh, recording artists or they've recorded with people and they're also getting into writing books, sometimes self-publishing. And I think that's one thing I, I want to kind of bring out that how people assume that what's going on in African-American churches is basically, you know, influenced by what's on the radio and what's going on and what's popular. But what mm-hmm. we have now is a generation of, you know, worship leaders who are like, I also, you know, they went to school, went to college, and they can write, and they've been, you know, studying. They, some, some of them have their um, either seminary or theological degrees, and they're really coming back and say, well, how can we write about, you know, the guides that people would need to really look into how to evolve the worship, or actually, you know, in the case of Leo's book, Leo Davis's book, is that no gimmicks. And so mm-hmm. looking at how can we get away from some of the, the traditions and gimmicks and things we may have gotten into and realizing that this is a gimmick versus this is a kind of um, looking at excellence in the ministry and what really um, being prepared looks like in some cases. Mm-hmm. And prepared in a case of a, a sacred Christian context versus a gig con- context where you might go on a gig and you might you know, go by the fly and things work out versus being mindful of all the moving parts that happen in the worship situation. Um, and also, I believe, what is that, um, Stephen Hurd's book, Seed of David, I think it came out a couple of years ago, and it's literally called A Worshipper's Guide to Mend the Heart and the Discipline of the Flesh. And mm-hmm. so looking at the spiritual aspects of being a worship leader, because, of course, when you're up in front of people singing on a regular basis and they love what you do, you have to be mindful of your ego. You know, is mm-hmm. you know when people are always clapping for what you're doing, and of course they're being impacted through worship, 
being mindful of, you know, you're not the star. Even though you're getting often star treatment, mm-hmm. you aren't the star of this. Yeah. You are a worship leader. You're there to guide people and lead people into worship and help people, you know, worship themselves. But what does that look like when you're constantly getting, ad, you know, adulation and, yeah. and people liking what you're doing and complimenting you on your talents but may not understand and know this is a part of my ministry? And so what does that look like to guard against those types of things and, and having actual a disciplined way of going at it as opposed to, you know, figuring out after the fact that, oh, my ego or my head has gotten big or people are asking me to do things that may be outside of my ministerial call, even if it is related to things like recording albums and album projects. Like, is this what mm-hmm. God has for me? And so really um, looking at how, how the church itself is starting to talk about what they're doing with ministry and, and worship and not necessarily always reacting to uh, what's happening musically on the charts or what the trends are. And in some cases, people are realizing, hey, that trend might be that, but my church needs this. You know, my church needs mm-hmm. hymns. Yeah. You know, my young people don't know hymns. We got to do hymns. I know those other things are great, but hymns are kind of what have sustained us as a people. And so we want to make sure our young people have that. How do we translate this to young people? And how do we, you know, get it into a form where it sits with them and stays with them like it stayed with previous generations? So those are kind of some of the things I'm looking at. And, of course, you know, one of my kind of, kind of um, through points to my book is looking at early African-American influences in praise and worship. A lot of times people don't think about Andre Crouch when you say praise and worship. Or they don't realize Thomas Whitfield, um, the late Thomas Whitfield, was into praise and worship and really writing about that in the early 80s and writing those songs and people were singing and not realizing, oh, this gospel song is also a worship song, you know. And yeah. so really kind of pulling those things out and kind of looking at how African-American musicians and songwriters have also been there. So it doesn't seem like it's an alien presence when you talk about praise and worship in a black context. Thank you so much for this conversation. And I, I hope when, when your book is out, we can have another conversation on the podcast. I think it would be really Oh, great. most definitely. <laughs> most definitely. That's it for this week's episode of Music and the Church. Thanks to Dr. Brigida Johnson for sharing her knowledge and insights on musical skill and anointing. You can find the resources she mentioned, as well as links to her social media accounts, by checking out this week's show notes at musicandthechurch.com slash 21. You can also get in touch by emailing Crawford and I at musicandthechurch at gmail.com, and you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter at musicandthechurch.com slash signup. This month's newsletter is going out on Sunday, May 20th. We'll be back next week to talk about applying for jobs as a church musician. 